Hi there, Duncan Green here with a uh, roundup of the posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, this will be the last one for a while because I'm off on holiday. I'm going to California to see my sister-in-law who teaches virtual reality in Los Angeles. How California is that? And then travel up the coast, go to San Francisco and generally check it out. I haven't been to California for a long, long time. So let's get on with the show. Uh, first, uh, the usual links I liked, first post of the week. And this extraordinary, um, uh, I don't know how I acquired it, from Richard Coles. Um, Saint Nicholas of Flu, patron saint of the Swiss Guard, a 15th century hermit who lived in a pile of leaves and ate nothing but communion bread for 20 years. He had a vision of Jesus that was so frightening, he adopted thereafter a look of permanent bewilderment. Just glorious, glorious. And there is actually a painting of St. Nicholas of Flew looking bewildered. So I must say, it makes the life of Brian, the Monty Python film, seem understated. Uh, just glorious stuff. This is why, it, this is what Twitter should be serving up. It's not doing it as well as it used to, but you still get the occasional gem. Next post, much more serious. Uh, six tricks for diverting Britain's aid to the UK. Guest post, this was by Dominic Vickers, who has some job description I don't really understand. UK donor compliance advisor at Oxfam GB. Um, ODA, official development assistance. The, the, the clue is in the name, or maybe not. There is increasing concern that the UK government is raiding its aid budget to fund activity in the UK. A close examination of the latest statistics on government aid spending for 2021 reveals the numerous financial slights of hand it uses to do just that. Here are some of the tricks of the UK's dodgy trade. Number one, use the aid budget for all the costs of hosting refugees in the UK. ODA rules do allow countries to, to count the costs of hosting refugees as ODA. However, unlike other countries, instead of taking those costs from reserves, the UK government, pre from reserves the UK government previously set aside to cover refugee costs, it has taken all the refugee costs from the aid budget itself. This has meant, according to the Development Minister uh, Andrew Mitchell, having to make fierce and draconian cuts to the aid budget. In fact, the UK government put so much of these costs down to ODA, the more ODA was spent on hosting refugees in the UK, over 1 billion, than on health, 970 million, a drop of 39%, humanitarian aid, 743 million, a drop of 51%, and education, 457 million, a drop of 16%. And since uh, Dominic posted this, another figure has just come out for 2022, the, follow, you know, the last year, nearly one third of UK aid spent was spent on refugees at home, according to the aid watchdog, ICAI. So just terrible then, but there's five more to go, so buckle up. While you're at it, pop, it in, pop a bit in for their education and health. Most of the UK refugee costs went to the Home Office, but it doesn't end there. If you look carefully in the accounts, you'll see that on top of the 1 billion to the Home Office, 247 million went to the Education and Health Departments for estimated costs of schooling and health for refugees and asylum seekers. This leads to the depressing thought that officials, officials have spent time guessing at these costs in order to divert more of the aid budget for UK expenditure. Third, now how about funding Britain's COP bill? This is for the Glasgow November 2021 
Conference of the Parties on Climate Change, the total cost was estimated at 250 million. Of that, 21 million came from ODA. Next, now reduce it by the amount of gift aid paid out by the government. This is a bit techy, but important. Money paid out elsewhere by the Treasury, for example, the repayment of gift aid to UK aid charities, which came to 158 million, or money paid in colonial pensions, 1 million, goes to make up the total ODA. Five, knock off the bits given in aid by the Scottish and Welsh governments and 25 million for the BBC World Service. Six, what else could they try? How about claiming ODA for loans and excess vaccines? One of the problems with the, with the OECD rules is that they are written by the donor countries. Ewan Ritchie at Development Initiatives is doing a brilliant piece of work looking at the shocking behaviour of donor countries and ODA. Not only are donors claiming ODA on loans that on average make them money, they're also claiming ODA for donations of excess COVID vaccines and even charging them at higher prices than they bought them. And of course, a lot of those vaccines are getting very close to expiry date. So that's me, not Dominic. So all in all, just terrible. Why does this all matter for the, in the UK? Well, the UK is unique in treating its 0.5% uh, of gross national income target for ODA as a ceiling. Everybody else talks about floors or minimums, meaning that the more ODA is counted for other activities, the less will be spent on genuine development and humanitarian spending. Hang on a minute. INGOs do it too. Of course, as a sector, we, are, we being the INGOs, are not entirely free of the temptation to hang on to funding. It is slightly different, but according to the Global Humanitarian Assistance Report 2022, a mere 1.2% of all humanitarian funding goes directly to local and national NGOs, despite them, taking the, despite them, the national NGOs, taking the lion's share of the risk and often being better placed to deliver. Oxfam's ambition to share indirect costs to increase funding for local organisations and step aside to support direct partner funding are all steps to address that. And then in Dominic's conclusion, chiselling away at the aid budget in this way harms those people who therefore fail to receive assistance. But it also harms the UK in at least two ways. Firstly, when domestic departments see a magic money tree, they stop worrying about how they spend it. Surely it can hardly be a coincidence that UK aid spending per refugee in the UK almost tripled from 2019 to 21, from just under £7,000 per capita to £22,000. That level of per capita spending exceeded any other OECD development, uh, OECD country, uh, and was around three times the average. Second, frankly, it makes the UK look cheap, undermining the respect and soft power that might have come with a more generous approach to helping those in need. So nice piece from Dominic there, Dominic Pickers. Next post was by me, and it was about Oxfam and Brac. Brac is this one of these great success stories from Bangladesh, not just of a brilliant NGO in Bangladesh, but one that has become the first, I think, really big international NGO as well. And the title is The Links Between Bloody Mindedness and Innovation. I spent a couple of buzzy days uh, in real life with Oxfam colleagues recently, um, first such get-together since COVID. Uh, one of the conversations was about innovation, isn't it always? But rather than generic thoughts, I thought it'd be interesting to work backwards from some success stories. These are historic examples that organisations tell themselves, but often in my experience, fail to systematically research. There are loads of these in Oxfam. 
many of which I've written about on this blog. So I started doing a bit of digging on some of the big ones and I came across this great example from a history of BRAC, the biggest NGO in the world, at least in number of employees. It's written by Shahadu Zaman and Imran Matin of the BRAC History Project. Yep, BRAC is now so big, it has its own history project. In the early 1970s, during Bangladesh's independence struggle and eventual independence, there was a terrible refugee crisis and widespread hunger. For those old enough, think George Harrison and Ravi Shankar, the, you know, the, the concept for Bangladesh. And here's the quote from the paper by, um, uh, by Zaman and Matin. Oxfam, a large charitable organisation at the time, played a major role, supporting up to 600,000 refugees at the camps uh, up until repatriation. Raymond Kunwaye, Oxfam's representative for Eastern India and East Pakistan, which is what Bangladesh was called before independence, and his team, were persistent in supporting local efforts for relief provision at the camps and later rehabilitation of Bangladeshis. While other agencies were flying in expat teams to run their programmes, Raymond, with strong support from Julian Francis, who was an Oxfam volunteer at that time, was quite sure that all the trained manpower they needed was available in India as well as at the refugee camps. The plan they drafted was also focused on the areas outside Kolkata because foreign agencies and their personnel were concentrated in Kolkata. Oxfam's locally based team thus focused on the border areas where they had links with mission hospitals and Gandhian organisations for ongoing relief operations. However, their decisions regarding how to implement operations, as well as which organisations to fund as the new nation emerged, conflicted with the views of more bureaucratic senior management in London, I presume they mean Oxford, as Francis recalls from his days in 1971. Conway was appointed as the field director in early 1971. Within a few weeks of his arrival, the Liberation War to liberate Bangladesh got underway and streams of refugees started entering India. Raymond warned Oxfam that up to 10 million refugees could come to India, a figure that Oxfam management in Oxford laughed at. A few of us had been working on what was at that time Oxfam's single largest ever rural development project in Bihar. Raymond lost no time in asking us to come to Calcutta and set up the administration of a relief operation that eventually at that time became the largest relief operation with which Oxfam had ever been involved. Raymond soon showed that he was different and his approach to the operations almost cost him his job. Francis elaborates, Oxfam HQ preferred someone who would listen to their way of working, which was not always the case with Raymond. He was called back, called back in the middle of the operations at the camps to be dismissed, sacked, by Oxfam in the UK. Francis played an important role in bringing the media attention to the work that Raymond was trying to do. In his words, the world's media then was at the lobby of the Grand Hotel, Assessing the situation, I immediately informed them of Raymond's visit to the UK, emphasising the fact that he was the one who had spoken directly to the refugees in Bangla, spent considerable time in the camps, and that he was one to interview for credible information. A flock of journalists awaited Raymond's arrival at Oxfam HQ. Accompanied by the Field Secretary for Asia, who had received him at the airport, Raymond would have to enter the office through the back door to avoid meeting the huge crowd waiting at the front door. By the time the pair met with the executive director at the time, the management had realised that there was no way they could dismiss Raymond. He was already on Oxford Radio and continued to have interviews with global media houses in Canada, the UK and the US. Operations thus continued and Oxfam ended up having a huge programme involving doctors from Kolkata and Mumbai, then Bombay, 
medical colleges and hundreds of volunteers. So fantastic, the power of the fait accompli. Pack of journalists outside, you're not gonna get sacked. While all this was going on, the eventual founder of BRAC, uh, established initially in 1972 as the Bangladesh Rehabilitation Assistance Committee, Fazla Abed, was moving between Europe, South Asia and elsewhere, raising awareness and cash for the relief effort. To ensure more funds for their work, Abed joined a series of meetings that took place between Oxfam, other voluntary agency representatives, UN officials and the newly formed government. The discussion focused on what rehab programmes could be immediately undertaken. The decision on who to fund in the new country, though, caused considerable conflict within Oxfam's management, even in the days before independence. When it was clear that the emergence of an independent Bangladesh was merely a matter of time, Raymond was the obvious choice as Oxfam's first field director in Bangladesh for his experience in the region. But again, it was not so simple. He told Oxfam UK that he wanted carte blanche, or complete freedom regarding the development activities to be supported in Bangladesh, and that he did not want to have any part in just distributing relief supplies. Give them to Caritas or Mother Teresa, he thundered. I want to invest for the long term in young Bangladeshis with vision. His stand of investing in development activities went against the more traditional approach of Oxfam at the time, the distribution of relief. With much debate, Raymond was able to influence the decision to support new and emerging NGOs, and Oxfam thus became BRAC's first international donor. So yeah, I'm sure there are other versions of this history. You know, they say success has many fathers, but I've seen it um, yeah, confirmed elsewhere, and I give some um, links there. But I think there are some recurring aspects of innovation with Oxfam in here. So the power of spin-offs and letting go, supporting new initiatives, not trying to control them. I'm told that other candidates include the Self-Employed Women's Association in India, Cafe Direct and New Internationalist, but I've not yet had time to do the research. The role of mavericks like, um, you know, like Raymond, prepared to slug it out with management where necessary. The power of the fait accompli in convincing management to, adopt and to adapt and change. And mavericks need to understand the incentives of management, e.g. getting the media attention to influence decisions. Uh, so very, very nice piece. Next piece, final piece of the week, how Beijing commands, how the Communist Party combines ambiguity and clarity to maximum effect. And this is by Yuan Yuan Ang, who is just like one of my favorite academics. Everything she writes is fascinating. Total rising star. Now, understandably, she's currently at John Hopkins uh, University in the States. Understandably, she doesn't want to be pigeonholed as the China person, even though her brilliant book how China Escaped the Poverty Trap um, uh, was, is just the, the go-to book on China for me. But she has written more global works on corruption, which I've reviewed on the, on the blog as well. But in a recent paper, she returns to the topic of China and does something really nerdy and really interesting. She analyzes the combination of vagueness or ambiguity and clarity in the Communist Party's public statements. And it's fascinating. Academics spend a lot of time demanding definitions and precision, so they find the deliberate use of vagueness in statements such as Deng Xiaoping's slogan, socialism with Chinese characteristics, both baffling and infuriating. It turns out they are a crucial part, but only one part of China's rise. So here's uh, Yuan Wen's abstract. In China's one-party bureaucracy, sorry, slurp of coffee, central directives issued by the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party and the State Council are the most important instrument of formal policy communication. Yet their language has rarely been studied. 
This study highlights three politically salient varieties of directives. Grey, which are ambiguous about what can or cannot be done. Black, which clearly states what can be done. And red, which clearly states what cannot be done. Grey directives encourage flexible policy implementation and experimentation. Black ones strongly endorse and thereby scale up particular initiatives, while red ones forbid certain actions. Together, this mixture of ambiguous and clear directives forms a system of adaptive policy communication. Using automated text analysis, I classify nearly 5,000 central directives issued from 1978 through 2017 into the categories of grey, black and red. And the, this uh, first of its kind measurement yields new insights into the patterns and evolution of central commands from Deng Xiaoping to Xi Jinping, the current uh, president. Here are her examples of grey, black and red directives. That, well, actually, I won't. They're very you know, techy, but they're, they're there in the blog if you're interested. And then she goes on to analyse which topics attract different colour directives. She finds new industries like e-commerce or ride hailing, you know, Uber taxi type stuff, big data and artificial intelligence attract the highest proportion of grey directives as the government tries to cross the river by feeling the stones, a much used uh, Chinese proverb. Policies in the domain of reform and opening, which includes trade liberalisation, attracting foreign direct investment, agricultural liberalisation and regional development plans, have the highest share of black directives. She doesn't say so, but my guess is that these policies are most likely to be opposed by vested interests, so they need to be pushed without any ambiguity. And red directives that clearly spell out restri restrictions are most prevalent in public security, banking and securities and land management, all areas that threaten the political and social stability so prized by the Communist Party. So that makes sense. But most surprising, given what we read about China, is how the balance between grey, black and red directives have changed over time. I'd expected Xi to be the least given to ambiguity, given that he's painted as this, you know, increasingly autocratic leader, but it's the exact opposite. The share of grey directives has increased over time and peaked in 2015 during Xi's tenure, which may be surprising given his authoritarian turn. Black directives were most dominant under Deng and red directives peaked under Jiang's administration. Yuan Wenang concludes that Xi's authoritarian turn, at least up until 2017, may have coexisted with selective adaptive governance. And she cites various speeches of Xi exhorting officials to experiment and, yes, cross the river by feeling the stones. Remember, though, the analysis only goes up to 2017, so I imagine there'll be a lot more red in the mix since then. But still, Xi's commitment to improvisation and experimentation is striking. I love the way she's taken forward her systems thinking in understanding the role of the CP in China's takeoff. Yeah, her first book, that book, uh, the How China Escaped the, the Poverty Trap for Me, was a brilliant application of systems thinking uh, about um, uh, how the Communist Party used ambiguity to get the kind of experimentation it needed for China's takeoff. And this takes it forward. In a country of this size and complexity, it turns out that ambiguity, great directives, can play a constructive role in encouraging exploration and innovation, as she argued in How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, but only in combination with clearer stop-go signals, red and black, with the relative weight determined both by the issue and the political moment. Superb scholarship. Thank you, Yuan Wenang. And on that note, uh, I'm off on holiday. Uh, talk to you later in April. Have a good Easter if you're celebrating Easter. 
Have a good Ramadan if you're celebrating Ramadan and otherwise talk soon. Bye.